you are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information visit commongroundcma.org. Oh, that was good. It was good to see their faces again. Thanks, guys, for, for filming that and bringing it in. Just a reminder of all the, the different members of our family who are not with us um, and who have been who have been stuck to live stream for the past few months. Um, it's just a good reminder that we miss you guys. Good to see your faces again. So thanks for, for leaning into that, the groups, and, and for doing the reading. And as they mentioned, this week is the start of Advent. Today is the first day, and as we enter into the season of Advent, we enter into a season that is often called a middle space. It's this middle space, because Advent literally means arrival. And in the Advent season, we look back 2,000 years ago to Jesus' arrival as a baby. A baby in a manger in Bethlehem. And in Advent, we look forward to the day that Jesus said would happen when he would again return. And so it is in the Advent that we live in this in-between space. We live in the tension between these two arrivals. We live between his first arrival as a baby and his second coming. And so this tension often involves living between joy and despair, anger and sadness, and joy and and happiness, and laughter, and all these different things happen in this middle space, when we're forced to just kind of live in this tension. And oftentimes, living in this tension, and especially in a year like this year, where it almost feels like the events of Revelation are taking place before our eyes, it can be easy to ask the question in this middle space of what is taking so long? What is taking so long for this second arrival to take place? And what could God possibly be doing in the world? And so in Advent, as we are in this middle space, Advent is an invitation. It's an invitation to bring our pains, our hurts, and all these unresolved things in this tension to God. And to pray in this middle space, come Lord Jesus, come. Would your second arrival take place? And the way that we are going to lean into the Advent and learn from Scripture is by digging into the book of Ruth, and you might be wondering, what on earth does Ruth have to do with Christmas and with Advent? And what I hope you notice is that Ruth is all about this middle space. Ruth is about a series of strange, seemingly disconnected events um, with these no-name people in these small places that God providentially connected to the Christmas story that God wove together in order to bring about his purposes. You see, the Christmas story didn't just begin in the New Testament. Actually, the day after Adam and Eve sinned and fell, God began working towards Christmas. And so, technically, we could have a Christmas Advent series in just about any book in the Old Testament. We could do, like, a Genesis Advent. We could do a Leviticus Advent or any of that, and it would work. It might be a stretch, but it would work. Trust me, we could make it happen. But Ruth is not that much of a stretch. Ruth has some amazing parallels to the Christmas story. Okay? I know it's often overlooked, but Ruth really is a Christmas story. You see, it's not a coincidence that the events in Ruth take and the events of Christmas take place in the same little town, Bethlehem. That the whole reason Jesus was born in Bethlehem was because of what happens in Ruth. You see, the Christmas story is the story of a young woman, Jesus' mother Mary, 
who made a radical commitment of faith and then gave birth to a child that would change the world. And Ruth is about a young woman who makes a radical commitment of faith and then gives birth to a child who will change the world. So Ruth is a Christmas story, and we're going to really see those themes play out in the next few weeks. The thing is, Ruth is often overlooked. Um, It's one of the shortest books in the entire Old Testament, just four chapters. But there is amazing depth in this short little story. You see, many literary scholars, Jewish, Christian, even secular, have said that Ruth is the greatest short story ever written. But because it pertains to this middle space, it's a little confusing. Um, And it's going to take some work for us as we read this short story to see how all these confusing events in this book are connected to see how God is working. You know, it's obvious to see how God works in, in situations like creation or in the Exodus or in some of the other amazing things that God did in people like David's life. Ruth is not quite as clear. With Ruth, it's almost like one of those connect the dot puzzles. Are you familiar with those, the little dot to dot charts? Right? Where each little dot seems pretty disconnected and it seems random. Until you connect one to two, and two to three, and three to four, and then a picture begins to change shape. So I have some examples up here, right? These connect the dots. So what do you guys think this is? Can you see this? Any guesses? A cat, right? It is. It's a cat. Even after they connect it, I'm still kind of like, wait, where's the cat? But okay, next one here. Okay, what is that? A turkey. Nick's just still hungry. Okay, a turkey. Let's see what it actually is. Eh, It's pretty close. It's a hawk, an eagle. Close to a turkey. Okay. Turkey vulture, maybe? Uh, It's getting a little harder. What do you think? I don't know. It looks pretty random. I don't know if there's a picture in there. Let's see the answer. Penguins. Oh, look at them. A few penguins. All right. Last one here. Now, this is when the difficulty has been really elevated. All right. What is that? It's you. Okay. We have another hint if we move further forward. Okay. Now, what is that after we've even connected the dots? A I'll give you a hint. What book are we studying now in Advent? Oh, what's the answer here? What is this? Oh, that's Ruth. Whoa. I know, that was our one. You would have never gotten it. But, so I hope you kind of understand this metaphor. If you get this idea of the connected dot puzzle, the dot-to-dot puzzle, of how each little individual dot, each little event, seems completely disconnected, seems random, until you start connecting the dots. Till you start to see that God is working in these details and bringing about his purposes, even if we can't see it at the time. Because you see, often in our lives, we get so focused on just a few dots. We get so focused on the few events that are happening to us, and we fail to see God's big picture. And we fail to be able to connect to what God is doing in our lives. But what the book of Ruth tells us is that absolutely every detail of your life is connected to the bigger picture that God is making. That every little detail. And this is what we're going to see in the book of Ruth. It's this beautiful story. But 
We kind of have to connect the dots here. Now you see the book of Ruth, it stars Naomi and Ruth, who are two remarkable women that have a lot to teach us here. They have a lot to teach us about redemption, about how God works in the fine details, and about God's hesed love, which we'll get to in a bit. But now when most people think of Ruth, they think of it as a love story, right? Every girl's looking for her Boaz. And it is. It's a bit of a love story. But the main love story in the book of Ruth is not really between Ruth and Boaz. It's between God and his people. It's between God and Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and all of them getting caught up in God's love for them. In God seeking out these people who are hurting and marginalized and in need of redemption. And how God uses the small little details in their lives to bring about his purposes. And so Ruth has a lot to teach us. And the big idea, essentially, from chapter 1, if the whole idea of the book of Ruth is that absolutely every detail of your life is connected into the bigger picture that God is making, then chapter 1 shows us that even pain, heartache, and tragedy are connected to that story, connected to that picture in some way. So that's what we're going to see in chapter 1 here. So if you have your Bibles, find your way to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to read through the whole chapter, but we're going to take our time as we go through it, kind of section by section. And as we work our way through the book, and you're going to want to leave it open, don't close it once we finish reading because we're going to come back. But we're going to look at the book of Ruth chapter 1 in three main sections. I think this chapter is broken up really by giving us the context, a conversation, and then the reception. And so we're going to look at Ruth chapter 1 in those three parts. Context, conversation, and reception. So if you have your Bible, if you have Ruth chapter 1 open, let's start in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Epaphrites, or if someone can pronounce that better than I can, they were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So stop. So we begin with the context here. If we want to understand Ruth, we have to understand its messy context and where it takes place. And it kicks off by telling us that this all took place when the judges ruled the land. This means it was sometime in about the 8th century BC. It's a long ways back there, way before King David, way before King Solomon. It's way before a lot of the biblical stories we're familiar with. And it takes place in a time which was summarized by one scholar as a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that was actually the last sentence in the book of Judges, right before Ruth begins. The last sentence in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, is in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So this was a really kind of chaotic and messy time. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now I know this probably isn't that different from the time we find ourselves in, right? When it's pretty much commonplace for everyone to think, well, I need to just do what I want to do. But what we see in the book of Judges is when everyone did as they saw fit, things got pretty bad. The book of Judges actually ends in a very chaotic, violent way uh, when a young Israelite girl is abused, dismembered, and then mailed throughout the country, and a civil war begins. It's a messy time. And there's this heartbreaking cycle in the period of Judges 
where Israel would typically reject God and reject his purposes. And then God would hand them over to themselves. Things would turn from bad to worse. Things would get chaotic and violent. Finally, they would repent. God would raise up a judge. This judge would awaken them, would end some of the corruption. Things would get a little better. And then the cycle would repeat. Typically, then they would reject God again. And we have this sad cycle. And what we see here with there being a famine at the start of Ruth is that we know they're supposed to be living in the land of milk and honey, but instead there's a famine. So we have to assume that this is the part of the cycle when Israel had rejected God. That God has withdrawn his presence. And the evidence of their spiritual darkness and disconnection is this famine. And the famine is so severe that Elimelech and Naomi decide to relocate from Israel to Moab. Now on the surface, it doesn't seem that controversial, right? They just moved to a different place. But this wasn't like they just moved to a better place. Moving to Moab was literally the worst place that you could move to as an Israelite. You see, the origins of Moab are recorded in Genesis chapter 19, where we see that this nation was the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter, who had gotten him drunk. The Moabites had hired prophets to curse Israel. They fought wars against Israel. They worshipped a god named Chamash, who they regularly made human sacrifices to. This wasn't a good place. This was a place that God was constantly trying to separate his people from. And actually, he was so intent on separating them from the Moabites that no member of Moabite society could ever participate in Israelite worship. And if you were to even allow your kids to marry a Moabite, then your family would be banned from participating in Israelite worship for ten generations. It says in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. For a long time, the Moabites were not friends of the Israelites. This wasn't like just moving to some better farmland. This made them sellouts. This made them traitors. This was a statement from Elimelech that says, God, I want my needs met, but you're not doing it, so I'll just do it myself. I am turning my back on you, because you did not take care of me. And so this was viewed as a traitorous act. Which is funny, because the name Elimelech actually means, my God is king. So you can imagine him like walking around in Moab, and people would think, well, if your name is my God is king, go back to your God who is king. And his very name would betray the acts that he's doing in this life that he's living there in Moab. This was, this was a rebellious thing that they had done. And rebellion has some pretty predictable results, right? Pick it up in verse 3. We'll see what happens when they rebel. Verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the, women, so the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. So as soon as Elimelech is introduced, dead. You know, like, they moved out of the famine, but we know humans are pretty complicated. Even if you have a lot of food, there's still a lot of different ways for things to go wrong. And now Naomi is in a vulnerable position. She's a widow, she's living in a foreign land, no life insurance, no family connections, nothing. And now the two sons here, Malon and Kilion, 
pass away as well. Now, if you are a Jew or if you study ancient Hebrew, you're reading this story, and as soon as you hear their names, uh, you could probably predict what's going to happen with their deaths. You see, Malon actually means sickly. And Kilion means coming to completion or coming to an end. And that's a euphemism for he's about to die. Okay? And I love doing weddings, and I've done a lot of weddings in my day. Most of them, I stand by firmly, and I have a lot of confidence in them. Sometimes I'm like, well, you know, please stay together. Don't mess up my batting average. But if I were to be performing a wedding for these couples, and it was like, okay, do you, Orpa, take you sickly? In sickness and in whatever else is going to happen with this guy, I might have some doubts. Or if it was like, Ruth, do you take about to die? It doesn't fill you with a lot of confidence. You kind of know where this is headed. And so, predictably, their lives don't last very long. And, and their rebellion has predictable results there in Moab. But what we'll also see here is that Ruth, who's this Moabite woman, she's this foreigner, she's this enemy of the people of Israel, she's actually fundamental to what God is doing. That his own people, who were rebellious, are not part of the purposes, but this young woman who acts in obedience becomes one of the main fundamental ways in which God is working in the world. Okay? Now we know that ten years go by, and neither of these women were able to have kids, Orpah or Ruth. And infertility in this time was seen as a curse. Right? In the ancient world, this was a sign of God's curse. This was a sign that in some way like these women were cursed, which we know from their names. It was probably the men in this case. But nonetheless, these women are looked at as being cursed for being infertile. And so now, Naomi's whole life has collapsed. She now has no family, and her two daughters-in-law are these cursed, infertile women. She was a widow, and she was alone, and she was without anything. And when all of these tragedies happen, we're simply just left to ask in this series of stories. It doesn't really give us any answers here. It just begs these questions. You know, what could God be doing? How can this fit with God's purposes? It doesn't tell us in here because, remember, it's the in-between. But that's the context of where all of the book of Ruth is happening. It's happening in light of these strange, tragic events. So that's the context. Now the conversation, starting in verse 6. You still have that open. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Son. So the word here, so God visited his people. Now Bethlehem is back in business. Now there's bread again there. And this word here doesn't mean that God visited and just said, Hey, everybody. This word here means that God's provision was given again, that the curse essentially had been lifted, and now there was food on the table once again. And so now Naomi, hearing this, feels brave and feels ready to go back home. After all, she doesn't have anything in Moab. But she tries to convince her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, not to go with her, but to go home to their families. And we see this, verse 8, as we keep reading. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that I may become, that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your, to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So one thing to be aware here, Naomi says, may the Lord deal kindly with you. And this is the first introduction that we have in this book, which is going to be a critical theme of this word chesed, of God's chesed love. Now this Hebrew word chesed is a very specific kind of love. It's pretty much untranslatable in English. Um, if you look through six different English translations, they have translated it 169 different ways. So nobody really knows what to do with it. It doesn't work very well in our language. The word loving kindness was actually invented in English to try to convey said loving kindness. But it doesn't really encapsulate it all that well. I think, from what I found, the best definition I could find, the best translation, comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Right? That's a classic. And the Jesus Storybook Bible defines Hesed like this. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's Hesed. It's this unbreaking, never giving up love of God. And even in her grief here, Naomi appeals to God's Hesed. And this is significant because, you know, Naomi is looked at as kind of a one-dimensional downer in this whole chapter, or in this whole book, actually. And honestly, she said some things in a few verses that make us think she might just know the right words to say. But nonetheless, her saying this is a big deal. That she would have the conviction to think that God's has said could be shown towards a foreigner, could be shown towards Ruth. Especially when she doesn't believe that God's has said has been shown towards her. This was really scandalous theology in the day. God's character was not really revealed at this point yet that he could love the foreigner or anyone else who was not an Israelite. And so this was essentially the first place that we see God's has said being expressed or being requested for someone else who is outside of God. So it was a little crazy that Naomi thought maybe God could show his hesed to someone else, to a foreigner, and that she she couldn't be given God's hesed herself. You see, Naomi's perspective is pretty uncomfortable if we look at it, where she says, God's hand is against me. His hand is against me. God is working to hurt me. That's how she sees it. She doesn't think this is just bad luck. She doesn't think that this is just maybe God working behind the scenes and she just needs to wait for God's purposes to come out. She thinks God is causing all these things in her life. That's how she sees it. And so Naomi wants Ruth and Orpah to leave. She says, you're still young, there's still hope. Head on out. Orpah agrees. She's like, okay, you know, don't have to convince me. If God has cursed you and there's no hope for me, then I'm going to leave. 
But Ruth clings to her. Ruth stays by her side. And historically, it's been interpreted that what Orpah did was wicked, and what Ruth did was righteous. But honestly, when I first look at it, it, for me, it feels like what Orpah did was sensible, and what Ruth did was reckless, right? She had no reason to cling to her. She had no reason to have hope. Her mother-in-law just said, God has cursed me, and his hand is against me. And then Ruth clings to her. And we see this in verse 15. She said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So Ruth here is actually displaying God's hesed love. Ruth is committing herself to Naomi in good or bad. And this is a little reckless. I mean, Naomi just told her, God's hand is against me. Come with me, and your life is going to be miserable. Follow me, follow my God, and he's probably going to hurt you. Right? I challenge you, try that as an evangelistic approach this week. Tell someone that God has cursed you and is actively against you, and say, so do you want to follow him too? Probably not going to work very well. But nonetheless, that's what happened in this situation. That even though Ruth had no reason to believe that life would go any better... Still God's grace was drawing her towards Naomi. Still God's grace was drawing her towards him. That God's pull was stronger than whatever perception Naomi was trying to give her. And it's interesting that Naomi's perception that you know God's hand was against her and that God was cursing her, this wasn't even correct, right? We see that God's hands were actually for them and God was drawing these women into his unseen work. God was bringing everything together for his purposes. But Naomi couldn't see that. Ruth, however, somehow, by God's grace, did. And now Ruth's faith is really beautiful here, I think. Because as we look at the other giants of faith in the Old Testament, at least people like Abraham, he had God's promise. Where God said, do this, make this big sacrifice, but I will act, I will do something. Or we look at the disciples, and at least Jesus was with them when he called them to leave their jobs, when he called them to follow them. He was at least with them performing miracles. Ruth didn't have any of that. She did not have a promise. She didn't have Jesus in the flesh performing miracles. All she had was the testimony of her mother-in-law saying, God has cursed me. And he'll probably curse you too. But nonetheless, she had this reckless faith to follow. And I can't help but think... May we have the strength to even pray that we could have that reckless faith as well. That we could have that kind of faith that Ruth displayed. For she had no evidence where these dots seemed completely disconnected, but yet she followed. And I think in the confusing chaos that is this conversation between Naomi and Ruth, because Naomi tries to send Ruth away, but Ruth clings to her, this is really a picture of how joy and despair, of how suffering and hope 
how all these things exist together in our life. And that in the picture that God charts of our life, some dots are joy, some are sadness. Some dots are fear, some are faith. Some dots are hope, and some are deep despair. And they all exist on that same picture. They're all woven together by God for His purposes. So that's the conversation here. And now we get to this last section of chapter 1. It's the reception, starting in in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? You know, I think that's an expression of joy. It's kind of what I am hearing there. Like, is this Naomi? She's back. And I think we know that because in verse 6... We see that God has visited his people, that the blessing has been restored, that there's food again, that the city is being put back together, and that people are coming back into the family who had been gone for a while. And so it's in this same vein of celebration that it makes sense for them to say, we haven't seen Naomi in a decade. She's back. This is a good thing. This is something to celebrate. And then in verse 20, Naomi, the buzzkill, says, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You see, Naomi's suffering is so intense, she feels like a different person. She no longer feels like Naomi, which means pleasant and sweet. She now feels like Mara. Which means bitter. And the other time we see the word Mara, the name Mara, in the Old Testament, was in Exodus, which we read just a few months ago, where that bitter pool was called Mara. And then God turned it sweet. And Naomi is making a statement here, I was sweet, and God turned me bitter. That God has done this to me, I'm now bitter. Naomi, you know, she tried to push Ruth away, which is something that often happens in suffering. We will try to push others away, and others will try to push us away. But nonetheless, Ruth commits to her. She clings to her. And we see this as a valuable, practical application for how to walk with others in pain and suffering. The others who are trying to push us away and saying that, no, 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 I've been through so much, I'm just bitter. That oftentimes what they need is someone to cling to them. That what we need is someone to just cling to us. Um, we see this said love lived out by Ruth here. And what we also see in Naomi's response here is often that suffering can actually kind of skew our perception, right? It can mess with our picture of reality. See, Naomi said, I left full and I came back empty. But we see in verse 22... So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, according to Naomi's perspective, I left full, now I've come back empty. But we see that Naomi had left during a famine, and now she comes back during a harvest. So how can that equate to leaving full and coming back empty, right? Something is a little off. Like, there's a big difference between Naomi's experience and actual reality. And actually what God is doing in the world. And this is a real thing. That, that suffering can actually change 
our perception of reality, that suffering can cause us to misinterpret what God is actually doing in the world. And it's understandably so, you know, we empathize with those whose perception has been skewed by suffering. We don't shame or fault them for it. But we need to be aware that this is something that happens often. That sometimes when we are in seasons of deep suffering or pain or heartache, maybe we don't always trust our own perception because sometimes our perception and our experience can be skewed. We say the experience is valid, but the, you know the interpretation, not so much, right? Neither of what she described is actually happening in this situation. And that sometimes our perception is actually wrong. Now it was a few years ago as I was ministering in uh, one of the last churches, this sweet elderly lady um, was telling me a, a little story that happened. She had fallen and she had broken her wrist. And she came up and she told me, you know, right before I fell and I broke my wrist, I had a bad attitude about something that God wanted me to do. And so I'm pretty sure God made me fall and break my wrist. And first off, like every alarm bell in my head was going off at the moment. And I immediately realized her suffering had skewed her perception of reality. And I immediately had to remind her, no, that is a lie from the enemy. God is not punishing you for your bad attitude. He did not trip you and break your wrist. There's no punishment left for your sin. Jesus took all of that. God does not need to break your arm to get you to obey. God does not need to punish you for your sins. This was not an act of God judging you. All the acts of God for judgment of sins were put on Jesus. And guess what? There's none left for you. So we don't get the luxury of being tripped and having our wrist broken if we're not following God. But nonetheless, her perception was thrown off because of suffering. She was thinking, well, God's hand must be against me. And when those situations take place, we must be reminded that all of God's wrath and anger in his hand was put on Jesus. And there's none left for us. And so when suffering, when the enemy tries to tell us the lie that these bad things are happening, guess what? You're cursed. You know, you had a bad attitude, so God's trying to take you out. That's not reality. That's not the way any of this works. So God's hand was not against Naomi, despite what she thought. God is sovereign. She's absolutely right in that. There is that uncomfortable tension that in some way God has somehow allowed these things to take place, but it is not a curse. It is not God's hand actively against her. In fact, it's the opposite. God's hand is for her. God is bringing her home, bringing her back, and he is using and redeeming these horrible events to lead up to Christmas. God was using these horrible events to bring them back to Bethlehem. Where one day, hundreds of years later, Ruth's great-great-great-great-great, whatever it is, grandson, would bring salvation to the world. And she couldn't possibly know that because she was focused on just those few dots. Because all she could see was the few connections that she had. But nonetheless, even in the pain and the heartache, God was drawing a beautiful picture. And God was connecting these seemingly obscure, tragic events together for his purpose. And through the line of Ruth in the city of Bethlehem, God was one day going to change the world. Even though, just in reading chapter 1, 
looks like that would be a pretty hard thing to do. But nonetheless, in a million different ways that we can't see or possibly understand, God was still working. God was still organizing his picture. And so, 2,000 years ago, Christ appeared. And he said he would come again. And now we wait here. Now we sit here in Advent, awaiting his arrival. And we sit here amongst all of our weird, obscure, tragic, painful events, and we wonder what could God possibly be doing? Is God cursing me? Is he against me? And what we see in Ruth chapter 1 is that even the pain, the heartache, the tragedy, in some way God is going to connect all of these dots into his beautiful redemption narrative and is using these to bring about his purposes. And so, when we experience these little events in our lives, or these big tragic events in our lives, we pause, and we acknowledge that potentially God is doing something that we can't see. Potentially, God is doing something that we might never know, but we can trust and know that he is good, and we can trust and know that this picture he is going to draw is going to be beautiful. That he is preparing the world someday through us and everything that happens through us for Jesus to once again return and arrive. And so to close here, I just want you to to look at these words from the Christmas carol, A Little Town of Bethlehem, which says this, How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. Let's pray. Father God, as we wait for you to return, it's hard to see what exactly you're doing in our lives. God, as we experience pain and the heartache and the tragedy, it's hard to see how your hand could possibly be for us and how you could possibly be working in all this. But God, we know it's true. Would you continually remind us of that truth? Would you help us to be rooted in the reality that you are the God who is for us and that you work in all things to redeem all things? Would you just root us in that reality? And as the lies come to say that we are cursed by you, as the lies come to say that we are, that you are against us, would your Holy Spirit speak into our hearts and minds? Remind us that your Son took all punishment on the cross. Would you remind us that you are for us? And God, would you just help us to see in some way how these little events of our lives connect to your big story? Jesus, we commit to following you and to having this reckless faith even when it doesn't make sense. We commit to following your pull and your direction. Would you continue to guide us as we seek to live out your purposes, as we seek to follow your will for our lives, as we seek to be the picture of your son that you've created us to be. So Jesus, we love you. We just thank you for your word for speaking to us through this. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.